Good morning, Grace. So good to be here with you this morning. It's such a joy that we get to gather together and worship the Lord this morning, sit under the word together. Fantastic. And, uh, and it's a privilege to be here and be able to bring the word this morning. Well, today is the Sunday before Christmas, so I thought it'd be appropriate to open just by saying, Merry Christmas. It's so cool to hear back. This is such a cool season. Merry Christmas indeed. Well, this is a special Sunday because it is the Sunday closest to Christmas. Um, but it's also really neat because the passage that we're going to be studying this morning as we continue our Advent study of the first chapter of the book of John, the passage we're going to be studying is really a Christmas passage. Uh, John as he is writing, really explicitly goes to the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus came down, and that's where we're going to be today. This is John's God with us passage. And so uh, it's just wonderfully appropriate that we would be here this morning and we'd be able to study it together. With that said, it is a bit unique. Uh, John's Christmas account is very different from the rest of the Gospels. Uh, We don't have magi and mangers and shepherds and things like that in the book of John. That's not the way that John describes the Christmas setting. Rather, uh, we have to recognize that John's purpose in writing his Gospel and his prologue, which we've been looking at for the past several weeks, is that we might behold Christ and that we might believe in Christ or have faith in Christ and be saved. And so John's point or purpose in writing the, uh, about the incarnation the way that he does is not so much to tell us all of the details, rather it's to tell us the fact that it did happen. Christ did come. And so he wants to make, make it known that it happened, but then he wants us to deal with some of the implications of what it means that Christ came. Why did Christ come? What does that mean for us as we go throughout our lives? And so that's what we're going to be looking at here today. Today, we're going to be in John 1, verses 14 and 15, and we're going to spend the majority of our time in verse 14, and we're really going to be looking at three phrases. And from those three phrases, we're going to pull out three points. And those points are, first, we're going to see that God in Christ came low. God in Christ came low. God was not content to leave us in our helpless state. Rather, he sent his son Jesus to come and dwell with us, to come and become a man. And so Jesus condescended in the incarnation at Christmas. And so God came low in Christ. Second, we're going to see that in Christ, God came near. God came near. Not only did God come down, not only did God uh, incarnate himself in Jesus, but he came to dwell among us, to live with us, to uh, go throughout this life with us, close to us. And last, we are going to see the why of Christmas. In the incarnation, God came down, he came low and he came near, but we are going to see that he is going to come lower and nearer still. And so this is where I think we'll really see the gospel in an explicit way this morning in our third point. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John 1. We're going to be in verses 14 and 15. John 1 verses 14 and 15. And the word 
became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So once again, our first point this morning is that God came low in Christ. God came low in Christ. And we really see this in the very first phrase of verse 14. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. If you really think about it, our entire Advent series so far has been about the word, the word. So the past several Sundays, we spent our time wrapping our minds around who the word is, not what the word is. It is a who, who the word is and what he's done. And so the word, as verse 14 tells us, is the son of the father, the only son of the father. And so we can glean from that, that the word is in fact Jesus in case there are any lingering doubts in our mind. We're talking about Jesus. And so this entire series, the entire prologue, and really the entire gospel of John is about making this Jesus or the word known that we might believe in Christ. Well, once again, uh, here in verse 14, we have the word before us. And in verse 14 really makes the word explicit before us. And it says that the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Now we want to deal with what the word did, but because verse 14 is drawing our minds explicitly to the word again, we want to we want to wrestle with who is the word, what is the word, which is going to connect us back to verse one where the word came up in the first place. And so verse one tells us who the word is, what the word is like. And so what does verse one tell us about Jesus, about the word? Well, you might recall verse one says that Jesus, the word is eternal. He is eternal. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is the uncreated one. There was literally never a time that Jesus did not exist. He is not like us in that he has no beginning. He wasn't created at his birth. He didn't come into being in the same way that we come into being. He is the eternal uncreated one according to verse one. Verse one also tells us that Jesus, the word, was distinct from the father. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And so what this tells us is, is that Jesus is not the same as the father and the father is not the same as Jesus. There's, they're distinct. There is a distinction among the persons of the Trinity. And so in the beginning was the word. He was eternal. He's uncreated. And he was with God. He was distinct from God and the Holy Spirit. And then last in verse one, we learn that Jesus, the word is God. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What is true of God is true of Jesus. He is infinite, holy, awesome. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He is holy, mighty, wonderful. He is wise, just, gracious, kind. He is God. He is not merely a man. He's not merely a wise teacher. He's not merely a good example. He is those things, but he is God. There is so much to say about this. 
There's so many things that we can pull out. Uh, We could spend all of our time just wrestling with these various things. But what I'd like for us to see here is that God, the son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity being, is being held up for us. He is the holy, eternal, and uncreated one. Now, if we come back to verse 14, we see that that Jesus, the holy, eternal, and uncreated God became flesh. Truly the most mysterious and wonderful, amazing event in all of history. Jesus, without ceasing to be God, according to Philippians 2, became a man. He became flesh. He took on a human nature. This is incredible. Verse 14, in verse 14, we see the condescension of Christ. God came low in Jesus. And so the God of all glory, who is worthy of all honor and worthy of all praise, stepped down into time and space and he became like us. And this should boggle our minds. This should baffle us. The greatest thinkers that have ever lived have wrestled with the reality of this. A few, uh, I found a few quotes from from famous Christian thinkers who, who sought to wrestle with the baffling nature of the incarnation. Here's what they had to say about Jesus, who is fully God, taking on a human nature. Thomas Watson said that man should be made in God's image is a wonder. And it truly is that we are made in God's image is incredible. But that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. That the ancient of days would be born. That he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle. C.H. Spurgeon said infinite and yet an infant eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet nursing at a woman's breast, supporting the universe and yet needing to be cradled in the arms of his mother, heir of all things and yet a carpenter's despised son. Last, Augustine said, man's maker was made man that bread might be hungry, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey, the strength might be made weak, that life might die. We can see here that this is confounding stuff. This is baffling, wonderful stuff. God has come to us in Christ. So many of you, know me and uh, you know that had a big event happen in my life recently. Four weeks and one day ago, my son Henry was born and <laughs> it is amazing. I just, there is nothing like this. Um, the past four weeks and one day have been so incredible, so filled with joy, so wonderful. Um, it, we, my wife and I are just truly blessed. Uh, It's been a really cool adventure. Well, one of the really unique and neat things about having a baby be born around this Advent season is it kind of forces you to think about the incarnation in in a way that maybe you're not used to or accustomed to thinking about. Well, uh, I think Henry has helped me to wrestle with some of the unique aspects of incarnation in a couple of ways. First, um, was at his birth, at his birth, uh, 
After Henry was born, one of the cool things that Kaiser did for us is they allowed us to have about an hour, just Raylin, Henry, and myself in a room. And it was just a sweet hour for us to spend time together as a family. But when Henry was born, what happened is immediately they put him on Raylin's chest. So she never really got to see him. And so she just has him on her, on her chest and we're sitting there and it's a wonderful time. And finally she goes, what does he look like? I haven't even been able to see him. And I looked down at my perfect little son and the only thought that I had was, man, his head is jacked up. <laughs> it looks really weird. He had such an intense cone head. I mean, he looked like what I would imagine an alien would look like. And he looked perfect, but he had a very strange looking head. So that helped me to think about the incarnation. Pause there. One more thing. I have entered into the world of changing diapers now, and it is terrible. (laughs) Not a fan. Nevertheless, it has to happen. And uh, so I I have changed a diaper for the first time about four weeks ago, and I'm you know, getting my my legs underneath me in this. Well, about a week after Henry was born, uh, I'm changing him. And as I'm changing him, I grab his legs and I pull him up so I can like, you know, pull the diaper out and everything. And as I do this, I look over and I realize that my beloved son, my cherished son is peeing in his own face. (laughs) It was terrible, absolutely terrible and gross. And I just, I was like, I can't wrap my mind around this being my new reality and that my dear son could do this and pee in his own face. And so I sat back a a while later and I started thinking about these two different events together. And what I really realized is, is that we are an undignified people. We are an undignified people. My son is undignified. His life is, is such that, Man, it's just, it's not the best in some ways, you know? And that's true of Henry, but that's so true of us as well. We are an undignified people. And yet, the Lord of glory, God himself, stepped down and took on this sort of humanity. God came low in Jesus. How? This is baffling. God came low. The Lord of all glory came low in Jesus and he took on this sort of humanity, shares in this sort of humanity with us. Incredible. And so given that our God has incarnated himself in Christ, I'd like for us to pause for a second. I think it's wise for us to stop and consider Jesus' incarnation, his condescension, and what his coming low means for us practically. What does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean when we leave grace this afternoon that Jesus came low? Turn with me to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. I want to read verses three through seven. And I'd like for you as I'm reading these to think about the ethical and practical implications of uh, Christ taking on humanity. Think about what this means for us on a day-to-day basis as we read. 
Starting in verse three, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. John Piper commenting on this says, the only theology that counts for anything is the Philippians two kind, which is exactly as the same, exactly the same as the gospel of John kind. It helps us to know Christ and glory in Christ and be transformed by Christ for the sake of love, which means it transforms churches relationally. It makes us more loving, more helpful, more servant-like, less proud, less selfish, less withdrawn, more caring. Alistair Begg, who's a, a popular preacher, wisely commented on this passage and said that the incarnation is not something that we can sidestep. We have to be affected by the incarnation. We will either stand upon the rock of Christ and live on the rock of Christ or we will be broken by the rock of Christ. We cannot avoid the rock of Christ. We must allow this to affect us. The the incarnation has an implication for how we are to live our lives day by day. We must allow God's coming low in Christ to fuel our love for one another. Because God came low, let us count others as more significant than ourselves. Let us go low that others in our community, in our, na- in our nation, in the world, in our church, that these people might know and experience the love of Christ this Christmas. John 1.14 shows us that God came low in Christ, but it goes so much further than that. Jesus isn't content just to be like us He desires to be close to us. And so this leads to our second point. God came near in Christ. God came near in Christ. We see this in that second phrase of verse 14. Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is great. D.A. Carson commented on this passage and he said that John is being unambiguously shocking in the language that he's using to describe the incarnation. John could have just said Jesus came, but he said Jesus came and he dwelt, he lived amongst us. This is wonderful that we are able to get this sort of revelation. Commentators are pretty much in complete agreement that the phrase here dwelt among us can more literally be translated as the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us or tabernacled amongst us. It's a unique way to describe what Jesus is doing here. And it's not by accident. John isn't just using random words to describe what Jesus is doing in his incarnation. No, he's using these specific words that we might be directed back towards the Old Testament. We might think of things like the tabernacle and the tent of the meeting. And so, so what would be significant about us being, having our attention directed back toward these things? Well, if we were to read in the book of Exodus, we, we learned some things about the tabernacle and the tent of the meeting. Uh, in Exodus 25, we learn about the tabernacle and let them make a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. 
Exodus 29 talks about the tent of the meeting. And it says, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. The tabernacle and the tent of the meeting in the Old Testament, these were the places that God met with his people. This is where God communed with his people, where he lived with his people, where he was near to his people. And in these things, the, the tabernacle and the tent of the meeting, the tent of meeting were precursors to the temple where God in a more permanent sort of way dwelled with his people, where he lived with his people. The only problem is, is that eventually this temple where God dwelt with his people was destroyed as a result of Israel's continued rebellion and sin. And so Israel no longer had the same sort of access to the presence of God. He was no longer with them in the same sort of way. You have to imagine that a a Jewish person, that the people of God, that they would think about this and they would know that they had unique access to God. And the temple's gone now, so it's no more. And they would have to say, will God dwell with us again? Will God dwell with us again? In the incarnation, the answer is yes. Yes, God will dwell with us again. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled amongst us. God once again has chosen to dwell with his people in a more personal way than they could have ever imagined. God not only came down in Christ, but he came near in Christ, closer than we could have ever imagined. He lived with man. He ate with man. He washed man's feet. He laughed with man. Not only that, he experienced the the hardships of being a man. He felt pain. He felt betrayal. He felt hunger. He felt all the things that make us human apart from sin. Hebrews 2 actually says because of this, he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He understands what it's like for us to go throughout this messed up world. He knows what you personally are feeling and going through this Christmas. He's able to know this. He's able to sympathize in this way because he came near to us. God came near to us in Christ. He tabernacled amongst us in Christ. As I consider this, um, my mind he floats off to an article that I read recently about a church that is known for catering to celebrities. And in their church, uh, at their gathering, their worship gathering, they have a private celebrity section where famous people and celebrities can actually come and sit and they could uh, be protected or uh, um, be in a little private section away from the rest of the congregation, away from the masses. Now, Obviously, I am not a celebrity, and so I have no idea what it's like to be a celebrity. Maybe those are absolutely necessary precautions uh, to being a celebrity. I don't know. Um, But I can't help but notice the lack of accessibility or community in a move like this. I can't help but notice. I can't help but imagine that if we had a, a section over here that was kind of, you know, there's a robe that, that marked it off and only certain people can go there and only the VIPs could go there, that there would be a break in our communion together. There'd be, our fellowship would not feel quite the same. There's a group of people who are separate from us. This is such a contrasting picture of what I experience every summer at Hume Lake. Hume Lake is a Christian camp that uh, Grace goes to every summer. We take high school and middle school students 
It is a wonderful place. Uh, We behold Christ, we worship Christ. It is a sweet, sweet place. Well, every summer when we go to Hume Lake, we spend time around a guy named Ryan Anderson. A guy named Ryan Anderson. Ryan Anderson is an NBA player who plays for the New Orleans Pelicans. New Orleans Pelicans. And and every year he serves as a counselor uh, in a cabin to a bunch of high school guys from his home church up in the Bay Area. And, And his students and really the entire camp, they have incredible unlimited, no qualifications access to him throughout the entire week. It is absolutely incredible the way that they walk around and how they are so united together. They are so near one another. The access they have to each other is a sight to behold. We have students who have graduated out of our student ministry. One of them is right here who have been dunked on by Ryan Anderson because he chose to participate in a three-on-three basketball tournament with his cabin. I was dunked on as well, but I'd rather call it Andrew Talley. (laughs) They were very good. I think this could be helpful for us in thinking about the access we have to God in Christ. Ryan Anderson is just another man. He is creating the image of God just as his students are. One of the crazy things about this is, is that we look at what Ryan Anderson is, an NBA player, a millionaire, the 6'10 guy. When he condescends down to these students. We see it as amazing, but really that's what should be happening. And we make much of it because it doesn't happen very often. That's to our shame. But God in Christ, we're talking about something completely different. Jesus is different from us. We are not worthy to look upon him or have him near us. Yet he comes low and he comes near to us. He lives amongst us. He tabernacles amongst us. And we have a unique sort of access to him. And so as we consider John 1, as we consider Christmas, we can rejoice and proclaim that God came near in Christ. God has not left us on our own, but he has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus. The idea that God would come low and near to us in Jesus is incredible. It is good news, but at this point, it is incomplete news. It is incomplete. If Jesus only becomes a man, he only lives amongst us, near us, around us, then we are in trouble. But Jesus came to do much more. Our third and final point this morning, God in Christ will come nearer and closer still. God in Christ will come nearer and closer still. If we read of all of verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14 tells us that not only did God come low in Christ, not only did God come near in Christ, but we have seen the glory of Jesus. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth and truth. These verses tell us that John and his friends have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here, like with our previous point, John is is really begging us to look back to the Old Testament, to think about this in light of what the Old Testament says. Uh, In Exodus 33, uh, Moses asked God to show him his glory. Show me your glory, Lord. And God responds to Moses, I will make all my goodness 
pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So then in Exodus 34, God actually comes and he passes by Moses and allows Moses to glimpse just the afterglow of his glory. And as he passes, he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So in these verses, we learn that the glory of God is seen. The glory of God is seen in God's goodness. It's seen in his mercy, his grace, his justice, his love, and his faithfulness. God's glory is seen in the manifestation of his attributes. In John 1, 14, John is telling us that when we look at Jesus, we are seeing the glory of God. We are seeing these things. So when we look at Jesus, we are seeing true goodness, true mercy, grace, justice, love, and faithfulness, and so on. D.A. Carson says, the glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying the divine goodness characterized by grace and truth was the very same glory that John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. When John and his friends looked at Jesus, they saw the glory of God. They saw God's goodness expressed in his loving kindness and faithfulness. They saw the glory of God. But where did they see the glory of God? This raises an important question because clearly not everybody saw God's glory in the same way. If, if they did, then they would have fell down before him and worshiped him, right? There seems to be a, a mystery here. How, where did they behold the glory of God? Well, John tells us that Jesus' glory was seen in his ministry, in particular, his miracles. Those who paid close attention to Jesus' life and ministry were able to glimpse his glory in his gracious acts of compassion. So according to John 2, when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana, he manifested his glory, which led to his disciples believing in him. The glory of God is seen in these sorts of signs, miracles, in the acts of God. But as John's gospel continues on, we recognize that his glory is not seen primarily in his acts and his signs and in his miracles. No, instead, rather, God's glory is seen primarily, chiefly, and perfectly at the cross of Christ. That is where God's glory is perfectly and chiefly displayed. For at the cross, we see all of God's attributes meet and all of God's attributes perfectly displayed, manifested at the cross. There we see justice, love, mercy, kindness, wrath. This is where we see God's glory shine forth at the cross. Do you want to see the glory of God? Does your heart beat with Moses's? And do you want to say, show me your glory, Lord? Then look at Jesus and at his cross and you will see the glory of God. Look where all of God's attributes meet. Look where all of God's attributes are displayed for the world to see at the cross. I'd like to take a moment and really make the connection to what I'm saying in my point really clear, really explicit. In Christ, God came lower and nearer than we could have ever imagined. He came lower and nearer than we could have ever imagined. At the first Christmas in the incarnation, God came low in Christ. 
He, without ceasing to be God, took on a human nature. The God who created the world and upholds the world was born a baby. He came low, but he came much lower than that. Jesus did not stay in a manger. The point of Christmas is not that Jesus would simply come as great as that is. No, he came to bear the sins of the world in his body on a tree. Christ went lower at the cross where he died that we might live. God came lower, but he also came nearer as well because Jesus came and lived amongst us because he became a man. He was uniquely able to bear our burdens and provide atonement for sin. We saw that in Hebrews. We read that during our worship time earlier. Not only that, but because Jesus made atonement for sin, we have a greater and unimaginable access to the Father. God was with us in Christ. Now, because of Christ, God is with us by his spirit. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because God came nearer still, we are able to have a unique and special sort of access to the father. We used to be near God. Now God is in us by his spirit if we believe in Jesus. God has come nearer still in Christ. This Christmas, please know that the God that has come lower and near in Christ, lower and near than we could have ever imagined, because Jesus came, took on flesh, lived, died, and rose again, because God did these things, we can be right with God. We can have life with God. We can be a part of his holy family. That is good news this Christmas. Before we close, I'd like for us to take a few moments and just think about some application points. How can we live in light of this incarnation this Christmas? First, I'd like to actually just point us back, recap what I said earlier. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We talked about this earlier. Remember the high Christology of the book of John. That's what we're, all, what we're talking about here. Who is Christ? What has he done? What is he like? The high Christology of John is to result in us living like Christ. We aren't just to look at him, we are to look at him and follow after him. And so what might this look like for you? That's the question. This is something we need to personally wrestle with. And I hope that you all wrestle with this Christmas. What does the incarnation mean? How am I to follow after Christ in this incarnational sort of way? Well, one way that I would love for this to be lived out amongst uh, the people of grace is I love to see this lived out in the discipleship of others. I would love for us as a church to be diligent about taking the discipleship of others seriously. Let us make disciples by preaching this Christ and his gospel. Let us also be incredibly intentional about equipping the dear saints that are in our sphere of influence. The people who sit in front of you at church, behind you at church, those people in your family, the people in your grace group. Let us be intentional about their discipleship. Let us be, have them in mind and seek to equip them for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let us take one another's discipleship seriously here at Grace. I think that's part of what is in view here in light of Jesus' incarnation. Take discipleship seriously. One way that I would in particular love to see this happen is I would love for us to follow in Christ's example who came low by going low ourselves, by going to those who 
people tend to think are low in our society, not in God's eyes, but who we often think of as low. And, and my mind goes to children and the destitute. Children and the destitute. Children and the poor and needy. At Grace, we have an incredible children's ministry and we have an incredible food bank. And both of these ministries meet so many important needs in our community and amongst our body here. And they need help constantly. They never would turn away volunteers. They are in constant need of volunteers and and of help. And I urge you, consider, might the incarnation of Christ, might him being made low, coming low, might that compel us to go and serve those people who we often think of as being low? Think about it. Consider it. Maybe the Lord would have you serve in the food bank. Maybe he would have you serve amongst our children here in the children's ministry. These are worthwhile places for us to follow after Christ. So have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Second, behold Christ and believe. Behold Christ and believe. And I want to really talk to believers for a second. If you are a part of God's people, if you are a child of God, if you have believed in Jesus for the salvation of your soul, John writes his gospel that we might believe and have life. If you have believed in Jesus, then gaze upon Christ this morning. Gaze upon this God who came low in Christ, who came near in Christ and who came lower and nearer still. Gaze upon him and allow your faith to be strengthened. Jesus came low and near that you might live, that you might have access to the Father, that you might be a part of that glad day when God makes his eternal dwelling place with man. Look at Jesus and believe. Third, same point, but I want to talk to unbelievers. Behold Christ and believe. If you are here and you're visiting us and you, do, you know that you are not a believer, you are not a Christian, first, thank you so much for being here today. We hope this is a sweet time for you. We hope that you feel welcome and and people are greeting you. But we do want to make it very clear that not all are children of God. Not all are saved. Rather, it is those who believe in Jesus for the salvation of their soul that are given the right to become children of God. This Christmas, recognize Christ as the one who came low and near not just to, to be in this world, but to save you individually. I urge you, believe in Jesus this morning. Today is the day of salvation. If you'd like to know more about this, talk to any number of people in this room. Talk to whoever invited you. We have Grace Group shepherds who would love to talk to you. Talk to me. Find somebody and talk to them about what it means to believe in Jesus. What it means to have a relationship with Christ. What does it look like after the fact? We want you to know Christ. Look to him, believe in him, live. To close, I want to read a few lines from uh, a song that I've been listening to this Advent Christmas season that has been blessing my soul. I think it'd be appropriate for us to close on this. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, Now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the father's plan unfold. 
bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we praise your holy name. You are worthy of worship. You are a good and awesome God. Lord, you looked upon us in our helpless estate and you sent your son clothed in frail humanity that he might dwell with us, that he might die for us, that he might be raised to life, that we might know you and, and have a relationship with you and enjoy you for all eternity. Lord, you are a good and awesome God. Father, I pray that you would um, allow your incarnation to overwhelm us this Christmas. Lord, would you call us to gaze upon your son Jesus, to worship him, to live in light of him this Christmas. Lord, we need your help in this. By your spirit, would you work in us? Would you root out sin? Would you guide us? Would you lead us to where you would have us go? Lord, we need you. We praise you and we offer you the rest of this morning as an act of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.